Hello and welcome to our Sabbath School Study Hour here at Granite Bay Hilltop Seventh-day Adventist Church. I'm your host, Pastor Jeff Walper, Pastor of Outreach here. And today we're studying a very important topic as we continue in our lesson quarterly, God's Mission, My Mission. Uh, today we're going to look at Lesson 9, Mission to the Powerful. Mission to the Powerful. But before we get into our study, I'd like to draw your attention to a free offer we have. Life in the Spirit by Joe Cruz is a booklet that is free to you if you call in at 1-866-788-3966 or 1-866-STUDY-MORE and ask for offer number 155. Uh, if you're in the United States, just text SH047 to 40544. And if you're outside North America, just go to study.aftv.org forward slash SH047. Again, that's a free offer, Life in the Spirit by Joe Cruz. You know, Mission to the Powerful is the name of this lesson. And I must tell you that um, it's not a topic that I've looked at quite a bit. You know, normally in the Christian church, we look at ministry to the poor or to the downtrodden. But mission to the powerful, I must confess, uh, I think I've neglected that a little bit. And so we're going to study this. And, you know, Paul, the apostle says, you who teach others, aren't you yourself learning? And I wholeheartedly concur. So as we study, let's learn together. Uh, we're going to go in our lesson to... Well, in my book, it's page 72, Mission to the Powerful. I'd like to read our memory text for the week. It's found in Matthew 16, 26. And Jesus speaks these words. He says, What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So you can be gaining all the wealth in the world. And yet, is it a good investment if that means you're going to lose your soul, lose your eternal salvation? Um, I would say that is not a worthy investment. Um, the lesson quarterly introduces the topic with these words. Though written many years ago, the Bible, the word of God, is the revelation of God's truth for our world. And among the many truths it reveals is that of human nature. And that, whether in the 7th century Judea or the 21st century Brazil, people are basically the same. Sinners in need of divine grace. Amen and amen. The lesson quarterly goes on with this introduction saying that this includes the rich and the powerful. The rich and powerful of Bible times were no different from the rich and powerful in modern times, especially in their pursuit of wealth, fame, and power. Often, but not always, at the expense of the vulnerable. 
Yet God is as concerned about the salvation of the rich and the powerful as he is for that of the weak and the needy. Scripture provides some gripping examples of Bible characters who were powerful, rich, or both in how God used them to be a blessing to the nations. We have examples in the scripture of Abraham, Isaac, Job, Solomon, Joseph, and uh, we're going to look at a few others, including Nebuchadnezzar, Haman, or I should say Naaman, and then the learned Nicodemus. So I'd like you to take a look with me at our first example, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is not a strange character to Seventh-day Adventists. If you've been a Seventh-day Adventist for any length of time, you know that the book of Daniel is a very important book to us. It's a very important book to God's people in the last days. We know that the three angels' message introduces the everlasting gospel in the context of the judgment hour. We see that in Revelation 14, 6 through 12, that John in vision sees an angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Same with the loud voice, fear God, give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is come. It's vitally important because there is a judgment before Christ comes. We know this as the pre-advent judgment. And the name Daniel literally means God is my judge. And so when we consider the book of Daniel, we see basically kind of two, two different powers, if you will. We see the power of Babylon or Medo-Persia, and, uh, and then we see God's faithful youth, his faithful, faithful Hebrew men in Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And of course, by the time you get to uh, what Daniel 6 and 7 and 8, um, Daniel's not so youthful anymore. He's been there almost 70 years, so he's in his 80s. But nevertheless, Nebuchadnezzar represents um, to us today what Babylon looks like. What is the principle of Babylon. I'd like to draw your attention to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4 introduces uh, Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, Daniel 4 is actually partially written by Nebuchadnezzar. And in chapter 4, we find out that Nebuchadnezzar, after all the revelation that God has given him through Daniel's witness and his three friends' witness, uh, Nebuchadnezzar kind of backslides into his pride and self-worship. We see in Daniel chapter 4, verse 30, um, we'll back up to verse 28. All this came upon the king Nebuchadnezzar. And at the end of 12 months, he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon and the king spake and said, Is this not the great Babylon that I have built for the house of my kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? So here we see Nebuchadnezzar proud, ambitious, self-exalting, glory in man. And uh, well, his prosperity has gotten the better of him. 
He has come to the place where he believes the hype about himself. And if there is, um, if there's a more helpless position than self-worship and self-aggrandizement, I don't know of it. And it's in this condition that God in his mercy has to humble Nebuchadnezzar in an effort to save him. You know, the Bible invites us to humble ourselves, but if we refuse to do that, God in his mercy will humble us. And of course, we see this powerful Nebuchadnezzar not handling his prosperity and his power in a healthy way. He is gathering and collecting all the glory to himself. And God in his mercy humbles him, takes away the soundness of his mind for seven years. And then at the end of that condition, this is Nebuchadnezzar's new mindset, his new start, if you will. And so I invite you to go a little further on in Daniel 4, and we will go to verse 36. At the same time, this is after the seven years of losing his mind and living as um, an animal. Of course, nowadays, I think they would probably diagnose him with some sort of bovine encephalopathy or something like that where he thought he was a cow. But, um, and that begs another question, is it sin or is it sickness? Um, I think it's sin here for sure. At the same time, my reason departed or returned to me, Nebuchadnezzar said, as he writes Daniel 4, 36 and 37. Uh, the same time, my reason returned unto me and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and brightness returned unto me. My counselors and my lords sought unto me and I was established in my kingdom. An excellent majesty was added unto me. Now listen to Nebuchadnezzar's change of heart. Verse 37 is much different than verse 30. Instead of aggrandizing himself and glorying in himself, which is the Babylonian mindset, this is Nebuchadnezzar's new mindset. He says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. That's more like it, Nebuchadnezzar. I praise and extol and honor the king of heaven all whose works are true and his ways judgment. And those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. Amen and amen. It's a wonderful thought that the most powerful man in the world in Daniel's day, the very one, Daniel, who typifies God's faithful people in the judgment hour, there was this opposition to Daniel's faithfulness, and that was Babylon. And at the height or at the head of Babylon was Nebuchadnezzar. And we see that Nebuchadnezzar's struggle in his power, in his opulence, in his wealth was one of self-worship and self-glory. And God in his mercy humbles Nebuchadnezzar to save him. Uh, not the route I would like to take, uh, seven years of thinking I was an animal, uh, but, you know, it, whatever it takes, Lord, prepare us for eternity with you. And uh, God was faithful. Amen. So 
the question is asked, if you read Daniel 4, what happened to the king here? And what does this tell us about salvation coming to one of the most powerful men in the world? Well, God wants to save the powerful. But first, he gives them opportunities to learn. Certainly, Nebuchadnezzar had many opportunities in Daniel 1, 2, 3. And by the time we get to Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar was a little bit of a slow learner. Um, something I can relate to. And God in his mercy had to humble him to save him. And so God help us to humble ourselves, not have to go through Nebuchadnezzar's experience. But let it be underlined very clearly here in Daniel 4 that God wants to save the powerful, even the most powerful people in the world. Um, at the bottom of Sunday's lesson, there's a question or two at, posed. I'd like to bring those to your attention. Even if we are not rich and powerful by the world's standards, why must we be careful to avoid the kind of arrogance that this king had manifested? Why might that attitude be easier to have than we might think? Well, one of my favorite quotes currently, I don't know if you do this, but I, I discover if Bible texts that really speak to me and I, I'll hold on to them. And, and then I find writings in the desire of ages or great controversy that I hold on to. It really convicts me. And one of those is desire of ages 661 where we're told that those who keep the scenes of Calvary fresh in memory, pride and self-worship cannot flourish in them. But guess what is true as well? If you don't keep Calvary fresh in mind, the only thing that can flourish in you is pride and self-worship, or dare I say, a Babylonian mindset of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4 verse 30. And so you don't have to be the richest man in the world. You can just be a legend in your own mind and be kind of delusional in your self-worship, in your self-aggrandizement. Maybe you played some pickup basketball, right? And you hit a shot and you lay in bed at night thinking how amazing you are. Um, you know, God help us <laughs> get over ourselves. It's not about us. And uh, might do us better just to get into the garden. Just saying. So uh, let's turn the page to Sunday or Monday's lesson. Naaman. Naaman. What a fun story. I love this story. Uh, invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 5. So let me, let me just kind of present who this Naaman character is, okay? Naaman is a very powerful man. He's a very wealthy man. You remember um, Little Maid is working for Naaman. We don't really know Little Maid's name. We just know that she must have belonged to a poor family, a poor Jewish family, and she was working off some sort of debt. I don't know if that was like some indentured servitude, but she was uh, working for this powerful man of Syria, uh, Naaman. He was a soldier, a general. He was a man of preeminence, power, wealth, and yet he was sick. And this sweet young Jewish girl brought it to Naaman's attention that there was a man, Elisha, who could help him. And it's just something to consider here. Elisha had 
How much of the spirit of Elijah? A double portion. God help us to have a double portion of the Elijah spirit in the days we're living in. And so Elisha is there and Naaman comes with a large entourage because he's powerful. And that's what you do when you're powerful. You travel with an entourage. And it's estimated that Naaman came with approximately, depending on what your inflationary numbers are, approximately seven to eight million dollars by today's wealth. And he came to Elisha. Now, remember, he's a powerful man. He's a wealthy man. Now, let's see how Elisha treats him. I submit to you that Elisha treats him with respect. But if you read 2 Kings 5, you'll notice that Elisha doesn't suck up to him. He doesn't, he doesn't kind of kowtow to his power and to his wealth. Um, I think that's a lesson for us because Naaman shows up with all this wealth and all this power and all this entourage and quite an assembly of chariots and horses and horsemen. And um, Elisha won't go out to greet him, which is quite astonishing when you think about it. Elisha stays in the house and uh, almost ambivalent. I shouldn't say ambivalent because there was a lesson that I believe Elisha was with intention trying to send to Naaman. And that is God, the true God is no respecter of persons, whoever you are and whoever you think you are. It's just, you know, this is, there's only one hero in this story and it's not man, it's, uh, it's Jesus. And so Naaman shows up with all of his, uh, you know, display and uh, Elisha just sends Gehazi to go out and greet him or to give him instruction. And so Gehazi goes out and uh, tells him, you know, go wash in the River Jordan seven times. Well, Naaman, this powerful and wealthy man, has a hard time grasping that Elisha, the prophet of God, the prophet of Jehovah, is unwilling to come out and greet him face to face. And he is not used to this sort of seeming ambivalence and uh, lack of deference. And uh, his pride is uh, wounded and he starts to get a little miffed. You know, what am I, a dog uh, that the prophet will not come out and speak to me and greet me and maybe, you know, show obeisance to me? And uh, Elisha is not um, in the least bit bothered. He stays inside. And uh, I don't think Elisha was arrogant or trying to rub it in his face or anything like that. But again, I think it's very important that powerful people understand that um, there's only one person that gets the glory. And that's Jesus. It's not powerful men. No matter what type of aggrandizement that you might be used to. Jesus gets the glory, period. And so uh, Naaman, as you know the story very well, doesn't want to go wash in the muddy Jordan River because there's much better rivers back in Syria. And why would a sensible man go wash in muddy Jordan River water seven times? He felt like this healing modality was far below his, you know, his person. And um, we got to be careful that we are not so arrogant to think that 
healing modalities that God has ordained are below us. I've had the honor and privilege to work the last four years at uh, Weimar Institute in the New Start program. And it's been fascinating to me as a pastor of some 17 years to watch these people come in and you, you meet all different walks of life. Um, before I got there, we had people showing up that were making land deals for large amounts of land in Russia for $70 million. And it's, it's quite remarkable, some of the people that show up at New Start. And, um, and sometimes the temptation of some of these people is, really? Beans and greens, high fiber, walking, water, sunlight, temperance, fresh air, rest, trust in divine power. It can't be this easy. Well, the, uh, the protocol is simple. It's easily reproducible. It's not patented. This is the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of Jesus' wisdom. No man can control it and put some weird name on it that no one can say and then make billions and billions of dollars off of it. It's just, well, it's, it's, it's for everybody. And uh, I love that about God. And so we've seen, I've had the privilege of seeing these people, all sorts of powerful people come to New Start, people of uh, own multiple companies and, and uh, people in high position in multiple businesses. And, um, and they're just amazed at the simplicity of the program and the results. And uh, quite frankly, so was I. I uh, and I got four years of, seeing that month in and month out, and I'm a much better person because of it. Well, Naaman had not experienced that yet. You understand, he had never gone to the new start in Judea or in, there wasn't one in Syria, you understand? And uh, the answer was muddy Jordan River water through the instruction of the prophet Elisha, who gave it to Gehazi to give to Naaman. And, uh, this powerful, wealthy Naaman just had a hard time valuing this counsel. But thankfully, he had some people that actually cared for him in his midst and weren't just along for the, the ride. And they convinced Naaman that it was a good idea. Um, go wash yourself in the River Jordan seven times and you should do it. And you know the story, Naaman did and Naaman was healed. Hallelujah. He comes back and you know what happens. He offers up this powerful, wealthy man. Again, we're talking about ministry to the powerful. He comes back and uh, he offers Elisha all of this wealth. And if you look at first or second Kings five, Elisha is not impressed with the position of Naaman, the person of Naaman or the wealth of Naaman. And he basically tells Naaman, I uh, thank you, but no thank you. Now, let me ask you, did the school of the prophets need that? Do you think the school of the prophets in Elisha's day could have used that seven, eight million dollars? Uh, uh, yes, I'll answer that. Yes. But for whatever reason, God saw to it that Elisha wasn't to receive this gift, this remuneration, if you will. And I think the message is, this is my attempt. I think the message from God to Naaman is, um, 
My grace is free. I pick up the tab. I've paid the price. And I give this freely. And I don't give this for money. That's not why the prophet Elisha is here. That's not what I'm about. So you keep your money. I, I love this study because, you know, in the book of Malachi, chapter four, verses four, five and six, the last three verses of the Old Testament says that before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, before the second coming of Jesus, God's going to raise up his servant Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the sons and the hearts of the sons to the fathers, lest he comes and smites the earth with a curse. I believe that we're living in the time of Elijah right now. But I think it's interesting that Elisha receives a double measure of the Elijah spirit. And there is a sad division that happens in Elisha's day where Elisha is not motivated by the money of the powerful, but Gehazi, his servant. I wonder how many Gehazis there are among us today. I pray, Lord, help me not to be a Gehazi, to be motivated by money. God, help me to be motivated to help the powerful, not for a kickback, but to help them because the gospel is for rich and poor, free and bond for everybody. And so Gehazi, close to the work, Elisha having a double portion of the Elijah spirit. You know, the Bible says in the last days, there's going to be a double portion of the Holy Spirit that pours out in our day. So I think we could learn a lot from this. Um, Naaman comes back with his seven, eight million dollars of gold and fine metals and fine clothing. Elisha says to this powerful, powerful man, thank you, but no thank you. And Gehazi, whoa, he is beside himself. And uh, it's all he can do to contain himself and be quiet, I imagine. And uh, Naaman leaves with his entourage, healed of his leprosy. Hallelujah. Uh, by the way, that typifies the work that God wants to do in our day through simple uh, healing modalities, healing powerful people. And uh, they're shocked at the simplicity of methods that God uses to heal them. And uh, you mean God's people aren't motivated by money? No. But Gehazi, as Naaman and his entourage leave, he goes chasing after Naaman, this powerful man. Now, let me ask you a question. This is rhetorical, of course, because you're not in the studio, but uh, it's one that I think we should consider. Do you think wealthy, powerful people like Naaman are used to people being enamored by their wealth and their power and their position? Yes. Do you think that... Um, Powerful, wealthy people are familiar with people treating them with extra, almost syrupy deference, kind of like this kind of yucky obeisance. Yes. Uh, and, and quite frankly, I think some of them like it, but I think some of them are disgusted by it. It's so familiar. But, um, you know, it's, it's a tragic picture you look here in 2 Kings 5, that Gehazi goes chasing after Naaman, not to have another quick prayer with him to send him on his way, but to go and get his grubby fingers on that money. 
and his avarice, his love for money. You know, money's not evil. It's the love of money is the root of all evil. And, um, you know, powerful people, wealthy people have succumbed to the blandishments of avarice for years. And um, there's a desperate need for the wealthy and the powerful to, um, to hear the gospel because they know very well if they don't have Jesus that all that money, all that wealth, all that power doesn't satisfy them. They're, in fact, more empty than ever. In fact, the, one of the highest suicide rates is in young people that grow up in families of wealth and prestige because, um, you know, when you burn through all the thrills of life at a young age, there's, uh, well, it's just empty. And so Gehazi chases after Naaman, not to stretch this out too much longer, but he goes for the money and Naaman is like, suit yourself. Yeah, take it. And and it's interesting that Gehazi says it's for the school of the prophets. And it's kind of scary sometimes the pretexts that are used in the name of avarice. Uh, Ouch. Scary. And um, under the pretext of the school of the prophets needing financial support, uh, Gehazi exposes himself, kind of sells his soul for some fine linen and some gold and silver. He comes back to Elisha and Elisha, I just imagine him sitting there like a knowing father, doesn't even look up from what he's doing. I imagine he just, he just says, Gehazi, the, uh, the leprosy that Naaman was cured of, you now have it. And um, what a tragic end. Here, there was a powerful work that had been accomplished for this wealthy, powerful man, Naaman. God had done a mighty work through the young little maid. Young people can play a big role in these days. God had used the humble Elisha, who had a double portion of the Elijah spirit in a powerful way. And, uh, and Gehazi kind of messed it all up in some ways. And uh, he kind of messed up the witness a little bit and God's judgment fell upon him. Let us remember that as we minister to the powerful and the wealthy, not to chase after their money, but to lead them to Jesus. One of my favorite quotes that I've been considering of late is we're told in inspiration that the amount of effort that will be exerted to bring the lost to Jesus will be proportionate to our appreciation of Christ's suffering on the cross. Again, our efforts to save the lost will be in proportion to our appreciation of Christ's suffering on the cross. And so um, God help us to understand his economy, his wealth system, and treasure the gospel and not some filthy lucre. May we be interested in souls and not the money that these prominent, powerful people possess. All right. Well, at the end of Monday's lesson, a couple more questions. What lessons should we learn from this story about not pushing people too quickly, especially those who come from non-Christian background? Um, I'm not sure. I'll leave that to you. Just be prayerful and 
All right, Tuesday's lesson. Witnessing to the learned, Nicodemus. Oh, Nicodemus. Let's go to John 3, a very familiar passage in the Bible. John 3, Nicodemus, the Pharisee, the Pharisee of Pharisees up there with Paul. Uh, Nicodemus is a very prominent religious leader in his day. He is uh, highly thought of in his community. And uh, let me read some of the introduction before we get into the scripture. Tuesday's lesson. Witnessing to the learned, the intellectuals, the people that have much education. Nicodemus was a learned man. The Bible describes him as a ruler of the Jews. John 3, 1. Jesus referred to him as a teacher of Israel. That's in John 3, 10. And he had a good understanding of the Bible and had a spiritual hunger for the Lord. From a human perspective, he may have looked as though he were a follower of God. He kept all the commandments. He was, a, he was respected, a respected leader among the Jews. He was powerful and wealthy. Many looked at these as signs that God had blessed him. Nevertheless, it turns out that the surface appearances were only that, surface appearances. And uh, God spare us from such pretense as well. And so we're instructed here to read John chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, and consider this question. What does this story reveal about Nicodemus and his spiritual need and how Jesus addressed them right away? So we're not going to read ver word for word, verses 1 through 12, but you know this story. There was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and he comes to Jesus at night because... Well, he doesn't want anybody to know he's, he thinks so highly of Jesus. Uh, he might lose his position. You know, powerful intellectual people can be insecure. And Nicodemus qualifies. And uh, he comes to Jesus and he wants to kind of know a little bit more about him. And Jesus speaks to him in verse three. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus has just asked Jesus at night, we know that you're a teacher that comes from God, for no man can do the miracles that you do except God be with him. And Jesus just cuts right to it. Look, verily, verily, I say unto you, unless a man is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. The Greek word here for see in verse three is arao. It means to perceive. Jesus is telling this most learned, intellectual, academic man that unless you're converted by the gospel, you don't even have the spiritual perception to understand what the kingdom of God is all about. You can know every minutia of every nuance of every present active participle. And uh, if you're not converted, you don't even understand what the kingdom of God is. Doesn't matter how many acronyms are after your name. 
doesn't matter how much tenure you have, if you're not converted, you will exalt yourself above the scripture. And um, quite frankly, God just doesn't need teachers and professors like that. And uh, God was helping Nicodemus, this learned man, understand immediately, you cannot even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again, Nicodemus. Your academia, your intelligence, your brilliance, uh, it won't get you through. You understand. So Nicodemus said unto him, well, how can a man be born again when he's old? And can he enter the second time in his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus kind of just cuts to it again. Verse five, verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse three, unless he's born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. Verse five, unless he's born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto you, you must be born again. I love this. Verse eight, the wind blows where it lists, and you hear the sound thereof, but you can't tell where it comes and whether it goes. So is everyone that's born of the spirit. You know, some people make five-year plans. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to make a plan, but I'm just saying Jesus says here in verse 8 that those who are led by the Spirit, they themselves don't even know what the next step is. I'll read it again. The wind blows where it lists, and thou hear the sound thereof, but cannot tell whence it comes and whether it goes, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Galatians 5.25 says, if we, are, if we walk in the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So um, God is trying to teach this powerful, intellectual, learned man, Nicodemus, look, you can't rely on your intellectual ability. Um, you're going to have to rely on conversion from the gospel on Jesus. You need to be born of the water born of the Spirit, and, um, and then God will give you spiritual discernment. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. The natural man receives not the things of God for their foolishness unto them. Um, God tells his people, march around Jericho without weapons for seven days, and then on the seventh day, march seven times, and then, you know, blow a trumpet and, you know, lift a lantern, and then walls come tumbling down, and, you know, um, you can just imagine uh, men of war think, how ridiculous, that's an awful plan. You know, we better not do that. <laughs> and God says, you know, hey, unless you're born again, you cannot even perceive the kingdom of God. All right. So check your intellectual <laughs> so-called ability and let me be God. OK, I just I love this about God. It's it's so fun. It's just, I like it. Oh, I'm sorry. Verse 9, Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Yeah, good question. Jesus answered and said unto him, verse 10, Are you a master in Israel and know not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto you, We speak that which we know and testify what we have seen, and you receive not our witness. 
If I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Fair enough. So uh, witnessing to the learned. When Nicodemus came to Jesus, he tried to maintain the facade, the status quo, but God knew his heart. Similarly, God knows the hearts and needs of all the rich and powerful, the intelligent, the intellectual, whatever their background. Nicodemus came to Jesus because Jesus' teachings had convicted him. But his pride kept him from coming openly in the day and confessing Jesus as the Lord. So he chose the nighttime to approach Jesus in, uh, in secret. Even after his conviction that Jesus was sent of God, he still did not openly acknowledge that he was a follower of Jesus Christ. Look, you know, power and intellectual position, um, you know, people form a niche in life and, and uh, you give your life to Jesus and you lose all that. Um, intellectual, powerful people have a hard time. And we need to be patient and pray for them because, uh, you know, walking away from all that self-worship is quite an endeavor. But the more we study Jesus, the more willing we're willing to do that and bear with those who need to do that and have wisdom to know how to help those who need to do that. Matthew 19. We're going to go to Matthew 19, verse 16. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles with me. Matthew 19, verse 16. I uh, grew up in Atlanta. My dad was a financier, a comptroller for an aggregate company. Um, I grew up around business, wealth, and numbers. And uh, I remember some of my best friends in high school wrote in my yearbook, Jeff, make your first million for me. And I was always wanting to learn about business and different strategies of collecting wealth and, um, well, amongst other things, but that was certainly one of my pursuits. And, um, you know, I think about the times we're living in now. We've never had such sustained collection of wealth in modern history. Um, I don't want to get into all the particulars of it, but I, I think it's fascinating that we have never seen this much wealth spread throughout modern society, throughout the world. Um, the central bank and the Federal Reserve have liquidated so much of the dollar. You know, I remember in the early 80s when the Federal Reserve started to release a lot of money into circulation. And I was always into architecture as a little kid because my dad was into real estate and in all these 900 square foot World War II generation circa 1945, 47 houses that were 900 square feet just weren't sufficient any longer. And you saw these 3,000 square foot houses pop up and then the 4,000 square foot house and the 5,000 square foot house and 6,000 square foot house and 7,000 and and in the 80s, we had the malls. I remember the malls started coming out and, and you walk into these big, huge, palatial, whatever you call them, malls. And, and the ceiling is, you know, 
70 feet tall, if not 120 feet tall. And you just feel so, wow, just your senses are heightened. And, uh, you know, you, you spend a decade in that and it's like, yeah, so what? And, and now they're tearing down all the malls or Amazon's buying them up and making them merchandise centers for all their, you know, monopoly of distributing commerce and uh, put the malls out of business. Uh, but I remember, you know, watching in my childhood, the collection of wealth, not just in my own family, but in my friends, in my friends' families. And in everywhere you turned in North Atlanta, there was a new neighborhood. And it was nice for us 11, 12 year old boys who wanted to build forts because there was always plenty of plywood and scrap two by fours. And, you know, the builders were always willing to give you their scraps if you were respectful and you would uh, go build your tree houses and all these trees. And I mean, it was, a, it was in that sense, it was a great time to grow up. Um, video games were just coming out, so they didn't own the youth in those days. Uh, maybe they started to, but anyways, you know, we're living on the heels of, um, of a sustained collection of wealth that we've never seen for the last uh, 30 years. And, and I don't know if you've ever been to an amusement park before and, and it was brand new and everything was nice and fresh. And then you go back some 10, 15 years later and everything has like a, a, a coating of grime on it and and just kind of like, oh, yeah, this isn't quite as fun as it used to be. I don't know how I want to participate in this anymore. And um, that's kind of the feeling I get about wealth and uh, the collection of wealth nowadays. Um, yeah. We desperately need to be intentional about having a mission to the rich. Because let it be clear, People who are rich and have all the houses and the cars and the clothing and the vacations and the social media selfies, uh, it's not enough. And they're not satisfied. And so they need Jesus as desperately as the rest of us. Maybe even more. Matthew 19, verse 16, we read, and behold, one said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And he said unto him, Why do you call me good? There is none but one that is good, that is God. But if you will enter into life, keep the commandments. He said unto him, Which? Jesus said, Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother that thy days or and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And the young man said unto him, All these things I have kept from my youth up, what lack I yet? Jesus said unto him, If you will be perfect, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. But when the young man heard that, he went away sorrowful, but he had, for he had great possessions. So here's the question. What lessons can we learn from this story in which, in contrast to Nicodemus, a person that did not accept Jesus? So, p 
picture this rich young ruler. He comes into the presence of Jesus. He's convicted that Jesus is someone special. He calls him good master. Jesus checks him. Says, hey, there's only one that's good. Why do you call me good? You know, he's kind of flushing him out. And he's like, are you, you, are you thinking I'm the Messiah? Are you going to confess it, that I'm the son of God? And uh, so this young man kind of gets to it. He says, well, what, what do I need to do to be saved? He says, Jesus says, well, keep the commandments. Now, now Jesus understood clearly that the carnal mind, Romans 8, 7, is enmity with God. It's not subject to the law, neither indeed can it be. Now, it's, it takes man quite a while to realize how desperate his need is for God, and it takes the Christian quite a bit of time to realize just how desperate their condition is as well, that they can't obey God without the gospel. And uh, God help us to get wheels on that, that you can't be a holy person and be obedient without spending quite a bit of time at the foot of the cross and being crucified yourself. But at any rate, uh, Jesus says, well, keep the commandments. This young man, the rich young ruler who has the trifecta, he's young, he's rich, and he's a ruler. It doesn't get any better than that. You usually have to wait till you get old before you have some money and to be a ruler. But this, guy, this kid's got it all. He's young, he's, a, he's rich, and he's a ruler. I mean, that's like the trifecta. And uh, well, he, uh, he, he explains to Jesus that he's done all these. He's kept the commandments since he was a youth, um, which is really not true. But, you know, you, you can't blame the guy because... On some level, without Jesus, we're all self-deceived. And uh, that's why we need Jesus. Well, Jesus tells him, um, don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your parents and uh, love your neighbors yourself. Young man says, well, I've done all these things since I was a youth. Okay, well, well, here's the test. Go sell all your wealth and give to the poor and uh, lay up treasure in heaven and uh, Come, follow me. Now, what an invitation. Jesus is basically telling this rich, young ruler, sell all your treasures and make me your treasure. Sell all your treasure, give to the poor, lay up treasure in heaven, make me your treasure, and you get to come with me and be in my presence. And the question is, which was more important to the rich young ruler, his wealth or the invitation to live in the presence of Jesus? And let me be clear, you can be wealthy and be a Christian and live in the presence of Jesus. But if your wealth is ever more important than Jesus, it's an impediment. And this is why Jesus says in Mark 10, 25, it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom as it is a camel through the eye of the needle. And that's not just money. That's anything that causes us to depend on ourselves, whether it's power, prestige, ability, talent, whatever, right? Self-sufficiency is the bane of the Christian walk. And may we divest ourselves of it daily and hourly. Uh, well, this rich young ruler considered Christ's invitation and he decided to keep his wealth and leave the presence of God. And notice with me how he walks away. 
it says in verse 22 that he went away sorrowful. You you can have all the money in the world. And it's important for us to understand in our mission to the rich that you can have all the money in the world. And if you don't have Jesus, you're full of sorrows. Paul says, people that chase after wealth pierce themselves through with many sorrows. And so I think one of the things that we can do as a witness to the wealthy is to make sure we have the joy of the Lord. In his presence is what kind of joy? Fullness of joy. And we need to not fake it, but really have the joy of the Lord. Make sure our treasure's in heaven. Make sure that we love Jesus so much that he's our treasure. And, uh, and then as we minister and pray for the, the wealthy, they can see that joy in contrast to their sorrow. I'm not saying that every wealthy person is sorrowful. I'm just saying this rich young ruler left the presence of Jesus full of sorrow with his wealth intact. And uh, he didn't make a good decision. Well, we're going to go to Thursday in the balance of our time and talk about the mission to the powerful. Jesus knew how to make friends with the powerful. He was admired, respected by many people of these kind. And uh, the powerful people in the Bible who came to Jesus came for help and uh, he cared for them. And we see this in Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, who both became converted eventually and brought all their wealth and helped the early church, we're told. Um, let's read Matthew 27. Matthew 27, 57. This is the crucifixion scene. Jesus has gone to the cross in Matthew 27, 57, we read, When the even was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. He went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus, and then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in clean linen, and he laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and he departed. What does this account tell us about the Lord and how he used the wealthy men who were clearly impacted by Jesus' gospel message? We find out that Joseph of Arimathea found a good use for his wealth. And I can't imagine a better use of wealth than to provide Jesus uh, a place to rest for a few days before he was resurrected. Um, what an honor, you know. Uh, the wealthy people I've been around oftentimes are concerned about what's a good investment, what's a safe vehicle to put their money into. And I submit to you that your safest vehicle to put your wealth into is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's a personal thing between you and the Lord, but I believe that we need to prayerfully be examining our hearts and asking ourselves, where is my treasure? How am I helping the wealthy around me? Am I full of the joy of the Lord? And um, I believe that God's gonna use many powerful, wealthy people 
as they come into the movement, as we approach the end, to bring the Gospel Herald to an exclamation point as uh, we face difficult times ahead. I wish we had more time, but I'm seeing here that our time is finished. And so I invite you to prayerfully consider again your ministry to the powerful. Remember the examples of Nebuchadnezzar, Naaman, Nicodemus, and others as you seek to save those who desperately need Jesus, albeit powerful and wealthy. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you that you left all your power and all your wealth in heaven. And you came down here willingly becoming poor to save us impoverished sinners. Please, Lord, help us to receive your economic valuation and receive the wealth of your promises that in Christ are always yes and in him, amen, unto the glory of God by us. I pray that you would help us to have wisdom to know how to minister to the powerful, to the wealthy. Help us not to, help us, help us not to exalt them and flatter them, but help us to be honest and uh, to be a faithful witness, to have the joy of the Lord ourselves as we point them to Jesus, the one, the only, to be exalted. In Jesus' name we thank you. Amen. Well, God bless you, friends. Until next time. Don't forget to request today's life-changing free resource. Not only can you receive this free gift in the mail, you can download a digital copy straight to your computer or mobile device. To get your digital copy of today's free gift, simply text the keyword on your screen to 40544 or visit the web address shown on your screen. And be sure to select the digital download option on the request page. It's now easier than ever for you to study God's Word with amazing facts wherever and whenever you want. And most important, to share it with others.